We direct your attention to the Word of God to the very last two verses of the book of James. Your reading there shows verse 16, but I'm going to read just verses 19 and 20 as our reading and our text for today. Hear now the Word of the Lord. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Each one of the writing apostles of our New Testament was concerned about believers wandering astray, going astray, leaving the faith, apostasy. What's called here wandering, and that term is used twice in these two verses, is literally straying just moving away from the narrow path, the old paths, the path of truth, wandering away from the truth. Now, truth is not just orthodoxy. It's not just wandering away from correct teaching, orthodox and right teaching about God, man, sin, salvation, eternal life. But it's also wandering away from truth as it is expressed in the outliving of the Christian faith. In other words, wandering away from that which is true, that which is authentic, that which has integrity. It involves moving away from the right understanding and practice of Christianity into some other lifestyle and some other belief system. And we know how prone we are to wonder. This is a bit of an introduction to a few paragraphs I want to read for you from our Confession of Faith in a few moments. The, the concern of James, the bishop of Jerusalem, the brother of our Lord, is that the believers, those who have come to faith in Christ, that have made a profession of faith, that are seeking to demonstrate that faith by their works, that are seeking to follow the many admonitions of James here. Most of them, as we have seen, come directly from the Lord himself. In fact, there are more imperative verbs per square inch in the book of James than in any other letter in the New Testament more imperatives, more things that you should do. James is very much an epistle of living out the Christian life. And his concern is someone strays away. Now this is a very pastoral letter. Even though he's been harsh and he's rebuked us from time to time in this letter, his heart is tender. He says if there's anyone sick... Is there anyone suffering? 
Is there anyone straying? He tells us to pray for one another. The Christian community is a community that is responsible for each other. How many times in the New Testament do we read about doing something for one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, forbearing one another, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another. And here's another one of those things that we do in community as believers is we see those souls that are straying, that have sort of taken their eyes off Christ and have just begun to point their toes in the grass along the path and moving away. And that is the admonition here. And it's an exhortation to just reach over to that brother or sister Put your arm around them and sort of lead them back to the fold. He already mentioned, and we saw last week, confessing our sins to one another. Sins that are against our brothers to, to not continue in an atmosphere and an attitude and an ambiance of sinful living, but instead holiness and purity should be part of our lives and part of our daily expression. And here we are admonished to be gently turned back to the fold. Now this notion of turning is all through the Old Testament. It's the word that we read it in our scripture reading earlier where Hosea admonished God's people centuries before the coming of Christ to Turn to the Lord. John the Baptist came preaching to the people that they would turn to the Lord. This is the faith and repentance that brings us from a life of sin and a perspective of sin and a, a way that leads to death and destruction to instead turning to Christ and coming to Him for life and eternal salvation. One of the most interesting exchanges anywhere in the life of Christ is found in the very last few days or the last few hours of Jesus' Jesus' life before his death here. And it's in the upper room. He has a conversation with Peter. And listen to the words of Jesus. Simon, that's Peter. Simon, Simon. Anytime the Lord says your name twice, it's kind of like your grandmother calling you by your middle name as well as your first name. It's time to pay attention. Simon, Simon. Remember Jesus so lovingly said to Martha, 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 here's something that's tender. Here's something that is tear-filled eyes in its delivery. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants the soul. Satan wanted Job's soul. Satan wanted Peter's soul. Satan tried to get Christ's soul there in the wilderness temptation. And he's after your soul. He's like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And don't you ever forget that there's an enemy of your soul 
And it's Satan himself personally after you. But the Lord, our shepherd, is watching that wolf. He's watching that lion. He's watching all of those vultures that would come after you. And here in a very personal, particular way, the Lord ministers in this way to to Peter. He says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Just think of the gall of that enemy. If you don't learn to hate Satan in your life, if you don't see his wiles and his ways in your life, you're short-sighted and myopic about the Christian life. The apostle says we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We know what his ways are. And that is his desire is to pull us away to draw us away from Christ, to replace our attention and to move our feet away. He says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord says, I'm praying for you, Simon, that you'll stay in the faith, that you'll stay faithful, that your faith will not fail. Now listen to the the text. There's something missing. There needs to be a sentence in here. But it looks like you're going to fail me. And that's what the Lord says. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. But listen to what the Lord continues earlier in that. He says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord knew Peter would fail and knew the specifics of it. When it would happen, how it would happen, what would precede it and what would be the nature of it. We call this Peter's great denial. But listen to what the Lord says. And when you have turned again. Oh, that's it. That's it. When we stray, and we will stray. When we lose heart, when we lose faith, when we are overcome with doubt when we fall into grievous temptations and sins, when we walk our own path for for maybe hours, maybe days, maybe years. Some Christian testimonies are how they've left the Lord for 20, 30 years. But when you have turned, when you come back, when you're restored, when you're brought back to the Lord, when you come back in repentance, when you come back in rededication and in consecration, when you come to the Lord and on bended knee say, I have failed, I have fallen, I have strayed, I have wandered away. That's a sweet time. That's a sweet time in your life when the Lord by His Spirit draws you back and you come back confessing and you come back with renewed vigor and energy and renewed devotion. My Jesus, I love thee. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. He says, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers and sisters, of course. In other words, when you've turned back to the path, do everything you can to help your brothers There's a sense in which 
we're called to kind of keep the flock together, to keep the flock in the fold, to keep the flock protected, to keep us from being like our passage a moment ago says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And that's what the reference is here in James. Notice that, that it's subtle, but it's there. It says, let him know, whoever brings back a wanderer from the truth, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That word cover is kind of casual in this passage. Cover a multitude of sins. Well, what does that mean to cover sins? Only one thing can cover sins. And that's the atoning blood of Christ. The word is used in the Old Testament. It's that same uh, word that's filled with meaning that was when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with fig leaves. In other words, they attempted to make an atonement for their sins, a covering, a kafar. It's where we get the day Yom Kippur. It means to cover. It means to put out of sight. They covered their nakedness. They tried to atone for their shame and their guilt. And it was an, an, an inadequate atonement to be sure. And the Lord then provided the blood sacrifice because it was in the shedding of blood that there is remission of sins. And Leviticus describes to us the meaning that the life is in the blood and it requires a life to atone, to cover the sins. And this is what Christ does for us in his death. His blood atones for us. It's the same word that's used where Noah covered the ark in pitch. It was made out of really good wood, but he didn't let the wood stand. It wasn't for looks, it was for function, and it was covered in pitch in order that it might be waterproof. And that's what God does for us. He covers us with the blood of Christ that we might be fireproof against the day of judgment. But there are many nuances to the word, but really the, the primary meaning, if you, if you study it through, it has to do with covering a debt. If you have an indebtedness or you have an obligation, you bring about a sum of money or you get a check and you take it to the one and say, this will cover it. When you eat lunch and have a nice lunch and you look at the bill and you're a little surprised because it was a little more than you thought it was going to be. And then you figure in the tax and you figure in the tip and you hand the waiter a $20 bill and you say, this will cover it. This will cover it. That's really what it means. It means to cover a debt. It's the word that Jesus used when he hung upon the cross and he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished, it's covered. And that's how the sins are covered. A multitude of sins. The Bible says that Christ died for the sins of many. It wasn't just singular, but it was plural and it was manifestly many, many sins. Christ died for all your sins, past, present, and future. He died for all of our sins. We like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way. But God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That 
death Jesus died was your penalty, paid in full, covered. No condemnation, no further payment necessary. That word that Jesus uttered also means a battle that's won. It means a work that's been accomplished. It's finished. It's done. There are words of comfort that come to us in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Before I'm done, let me read that for you. It is chapter 17, and it's called The Perseverance of the Saints. The Perseverance of the Saints. And every, in, in our confession, as those of you who've studied it know, virtually every clause in the confession, confession has a scriptural proof text. And most of our editions will carry that in the footnotes. But you can hear the very words of Scripture as the confession does what it so wonderfully does and kind of distills and summarizes in small compass the vastness of the gospel. And hear this particular uh, passage on the perseverance of the saints. They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally or finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. What a comforting assertion. The perseverance, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but on the unchangeableness of the decree of election flowing from a free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy and the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the remaining of the Spirit. Our salvation and preservation is a work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in covenant with one purpose, to save us, and to surely save us for all eternity. And the nature of the covenant of grace, from all of which shall arise the certainty and, and infallibility of it. In other words, we are going to be saved. And you say, well, Ron, what, I thought this passage talks about falling away in apostasy. Yeah, that's how, he, that's how he's going to keep us saved, is he's going to keep drawing us back. He's never going to let us get away. He's never going to let us fall into perdition. He's going to send brothers and sisters around us to herd us back. He's going to have his word penetrate. When we're furthest away and are almost out of the, the hearing of his voice, the still small voice will work within our conscience and bring us back. One day we'll get sick of our sin. One day we will be tired of the mire and the muck and the husk that the pig eats and we'll arise and go to the Father. Now here's my favorite one, is the third paragraph. And it's a most realistic, pastoral, down-to-earth, plain teaching and preaching I'll find anywhere in our, in our statement of faith. Nevertheless, it says, we'll certainly be saved. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, the neglect of the means of their perseverance, 
fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue in them, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit. They come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. A real Christian is miserable in his sin. may enjoy it for a while. The pleasures of sin are always for a season. Scripture tells us that sin is pleasurable, but it turns to a bitterness. There's a gall to it. The life that's been put within us can't sustain itself on sinful living. And so we are called back. Come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. Oh, it's great when God deprives us of our comfort in order to draw us back to himself. Have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. Hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments on themselves. Nevertheless, all these things happen to the believer, but he brings us back. Let me close by reading just one more thing. And that is, James had a brother, another half-brother of Jesus, Jude. And Jude sat down to write a beautiful gospel uh, treatise, he tells us. He wanted to write about the faith delivered to the saints. He wanted to be like Paul and write a book of Romans type treatise. And he wanted to preach the gospel and he wanted to uplift the grace of God and he wanted to talk about the love of God that, is, that has saved us and drawn us to the Lord. He wanted to really soar the heights, but he looked around him and he saw the people were beginning to be deceived and they were falling into sin and into apostasy and there was an immediate pastoral concern. So instead of writing a treatise all about the, the wonders of the gospel, he had to write a polemic against these deceivers and against these false uh, preachers and against the sinful living that was going on all around. And he, he has an invective against them for the whole, uh, about three-fourths of his little one-chapter epistle. But listen to how he ends it up with a great contrast, verse 20. But you, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again, the triune God at work. Pray in the Holy Spirit, the love of God, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Same thing his brother James had talked about. Take a brother and a sister who you see is straying, wandering off the path, and bring them back. He used a little stronger terminology. He says basically grab them and snatch them and bring them back. In other words, give them all the encouragement you possibly can and then move them. Bring them back. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. And then he sums it up this way, and there's no better way. This is one of the great benedictions that we use often. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen.